Uh, we are about to start. Let me tell you. Let me tell you that the um, air raid alert is now on, so we had to come down to the bomb shelter. So we'll have to to conduct okay, this cool. podcast. Yeah, sorry about that, but this is our reality. Hello and welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast, the show where we bring you the latest across Friends of Europe's program activities as they link to European and world affairs. I'm your host for this one, Sean Flynn, and today, as evidenced from our intro, we're doing something a little different. Tomorrow, the 24th of February 2023, will mark one year on since Russia illegally invaded Ukraine in a move that has come to define the geopolitical moment. In Europe and across the world, it's impacted supply chains, kickstarted an energy crisis, caused soaring inflation, a cost of living crisis, and a huge migratory upheaval. And that's just accounting for the extra military impact. The death toll on both sides is in the hundreds of thousands with an estimated 30,000 Ukrainian civilians dead since the beginning of the outbreak. And so, to commemorate the first anniversary of war, this podcast will focus on the stories of Ukrainians, what they've gone through, and where they're at now in their struggle with the Russian aggressor. Above all, we cannot normalize the war. We're delighted to be joined by Amin Zaporova, Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, and also Friends of Europe's European Young Leader, Class of 2023, Boris Tarasuk, former Minister of Foreign Affairs for Ukraine, Mariana Drach, journalist with Free Radio Europe and ex-fellow at the Reuters Institute for Study of Journalism, and Ina Shevchenko, Ukrainian author, activist, journalist at Charlie Hebdo, and leader of Femen International. It's our pleasure to bring you their personal reflections. So let's dive right in with our first speaker, Emin Zaporova. It's my pleasure. I would like to begin with, if I may, um, a fundamental but I think quite an important question. This war has really been thought of in terms of air superiority, military support and all of that. But at the end of the day, this is a war that affects people. It affects their state of mind, and it's left so many invisible scars on Ukraine's citizens and their mental health. Um, just before this podcast began, your assistant Ola informed us that an air raid alarm is going off at the moment of this recording, and that you're actually uh, recording this from a bomb shelter within your offices. So I and uh, many others would just really love to know genuinely, how are you? <laughs> It's a wonderful question, Sean. I'm okay. I'm living my life as a human being, manifesting my dignity, even though sometimes it's quite a challenge, I would say. But as you rightly mentioned, I'm now in a bomb shelter with my colleagues, with Ole and Olena. They're next to me. Um, and actually, there is a separate room, I would say luxury room, for the first deputy minister in our bomb shelter. This is exactly... The room where I spent my first day of the war, and let me probably reflect that I had to take the leadership in the ministry 24th of February. And the first day, early in the morning, I was already in my office and we had over 100 diplomats who came to the ministry according to the instruction, because, of course, we prepared ourselves for the war. 
and uh, we had a planning meeting. It was an extraordinary planning. It took us like a couple of hours to sit and plan. The, the irony, actually, uh, of that situation was that when we were planning the meeting, we understood that we are now hiding in the bomb shelter uh, from the Russian bombs, not from the American bombs, because the basement and the bomb shelter and the building of the ministry itself, it was constructed during the Soviet period, and the bomb shelter was supposed to secure people from the uh, NATO bombs, from the Western bombs, from the American bombs. So, like, when we had... After the, the first planning meeting, I was standing uh, in front of my window, which is a huge window with best and perfect view to the whole city center of Kiev. I was drinking my coffee and I saw the first missile hitting the intelligence uh, service premises. And we, I was in a shock for a couple of seconds and I screamed out to my staffers actually to uh, go to the bomb shelter. But previously, like probably half an hour before the first missile hit uh, the intelligence service premises, we decided to check the bomb shelter. Just, you know, it was almost a joke. My colleagues suggested that we all go in just to check the bomb shelter. And we still were in a mood of, you know, kind of, okay, uh, because the human being psycho was not able to grasp the very war and how it feels. So we were still having some jokes, you know, talking about our life, about parties, and, you know, there was jokes, we will bring some sparkling, you know, we will survive this uh, in, in the bomb shelter. But when after the missile hit uh, the um, intelligence service, and when we, for the second time, came to the bomb shelter, there was a grave silence. No one could say a word, because at those at that very moment, we all understood that our lives would change forever. And then uh, we spent hours here in the bomb shelter and then there was a government meeting. I was online in the meeting and there was a discussion about the evacuation. So the part of the government went to the Western part of Ukraine. The other part stayed in Kyiv. So this whole hell, I would say, started. But nevertheless, uh, I think that my big point is different, is that even though we sometimes don't have electricity, we sometimes save the water in the bottles to flush the toilet. We don't have basic things to shower, to eat sometimes, but this what makes us a nation, because this is exactly what manifests human beings' strength and dignity. And I was really shocked when I was driving to a meeting, and then I spent 15 minutes in a in a traffic jam. And I was so happy that we had a traffic jam in Kiev. Like I, I hated traffic jams before, but uh, when I understood that we have enough cars to go through traffic jam, and this means life. Mm, I love that human aspect of it, you know, just even being stuck in a traffic jam and the mundanity of it can actually offer some kind of solace. Um, thank you for sharing this experience with us. I can only imagine the horror watching missiles crashing down alongside your morning coffee. So I want to thank you for your bravery. I also appreciated what you said about going down to the shelter to check on it with humor, telling jokes, able to laugh. But then, of course, it was replaced by the grave silence. So I wonder, is that ability to keep laughing a solace also? Um, is it something that you think you've taken with you over the past year, this humor, this ability to stay optimistic about the future? Absolutely. 
because otherwise uh, there is no room for victory and there is no room for hope. So I think that millions of my compatriots are actually, as I said, manifesting dignity by demonstrating this super will and superhuman strength in their fight when it comes to our soldiers, men and women in our diplomatic fight when it comes to our diplomats, because otherwise you know that Ukraine today we dramatically need weapons because without weapon, weapon and weapon, as my president says, nothing would be there. So we really have to be well equipped. We really have to be well prepared for that cynical and barbaric attacks of Russia that hit our cities and civilian dwellings, kill our people and our civilians. And then we are now experts in armament, in energy security, in nuclear security, in a promotion of Ukraine, like we do all those things that mostly other diplomats do not have as a capacity or as a skill. We really have to be very intensive in apprehending new and new skills in order our country to be much more secured. So to sum up, this war, it's a bleeding pain, but my nation and Ukrainian people are super heroes, I would say, are super humans, because nevertheless, and despite everything, we keep on fighting, we keep on believing in our future life. We even today, we discuss reconstruction and rebuilding of Ukraine, and our president was very actually right in, in having this narrative, okay, let us not only focus in, in current damage, it's huge, believe me. The damage of Ukraine and our infrastructure is huge. But nevertheless, we discuss the future. We say that there will be obviously future because even though we have not won the war yet, but Russia has already lost it because they discredited itself as a partner and probably their future is not that optimistic as we hope for. Let's turn now to Boris Tarasuk who is a Ukrainian politician who has twice served as the Minister for Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. Thank you so much, sir, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Mr. Tarasuk, we just heard from Emin Zaporova, who talked us through the events of the 24th of February 2022, how she was woken up in the middle of the night for an extraordinary ministerial meeting. Um, you were also there. And from that meeting, a rapid series of decisions had to be taken, which only proves how Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine upended reality. Because human nature has a way of normalizing these kind of terrifying situations, one of the things we talk about a lot at Friends of Europe is this idea that we cannot allow these acts of aggression to become the quote-unquote new normal. Uh, after all, Russia's attack on Ukraine is an attack on a European country. It's an attack on Europe. And so we can't afford to sleep through this alarm. So my question to you is, how can we not normalize this war? Well, uh, it is very strange uh, phrase, uh, normalize or not normalize the war. But let me remind you that if you look at the history of, uh, well, the global history, you will find out that uh, this history was full of wars. Uh, last century uh, only, uh, we had two world wars, um, first uh, and second. And uh, uh, after the Second World War, 
And after uh, United Nations decided to create the, the future security, peace and security organization that is the United Nations. So um, there were a lot of uh, decisions made uh, that uh, uh, no war anymore. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and nobody expected the, this kind of war may emerge uh, in the 21st century. Uh, unfortunately, it uh, was the case, uh, and um, it was uh, unexpected for the outside world, although the intelligence um, of different countries uh, were warning about this possible uh, large-scale war. Um, how to ensure that uh, uh, the, the war will not be a normal uh, or normality in the global affairs? Uh, this is, of course, uh, the uh, objective of uh, any uh, peace-loving country, which Ukraine is, and this is uh, the, the strive of all reasonable people in the world. Unfortunately, uh, uh, it happened. It happened because of the adventuristic uh, policy of uh, a dictatorial Russia regime. Uh, and um, they, in fact, uh, breached uh, all possible international uh, uh, instruments. Uh, the international and uh, global peace and security was breached. International law, fundamentals of international law were breached. Uh, well, the international security system has failed, uh, neither from the United Nations, uh, which, uh, according to the statute, has to ensure international peace and, and stability and security. Uh, no um, security guarantees provided to Ukraine by United States, uh, UK and Russia worked. Uh, so all these um, uh, security guarantees uh, uh, failed. And uh, what is the recite against the, the war becoming a normality? Uh, from my point of view, the accountability of any aggressor, that's what we are now working over. Uh, Russia should not feel itself unpunished. Uh, unfortunately, it was the case before uh, this uh, large-scale war, which is uh, comparable only to the Second World War. Um, in uh, Back in 2008, when uh, Russia attacked Georgia, uh, the reaction from the international community was inadequate. So, And this was a kind of invitation to Russia to repeat uh, what they did in, in Georgia. And they uh, dared to do this. Now this is a year since uh, we are uh, defending our country. We are defending not only our country, we are defending the values and principles of a democratic world, of democratic community. So, and uh, uh, without any exaggeration, Ukraine is defending um, uh, Europe now against the evil empire, which is Russia. Absolutely, and I take your point that normalization is a strange phrase as war is always going on. And indeed, many of the founding principles of our multilateral organizations are based on the expectations that war will continue to exist, and uh, it's their job to prevent them. It's refreshing to hear also what you mentioned about accountability as the pillar to prevent normalization. 
last week we had the Georgian ambassador on the podcast who also spoke about Russia's attack on Georgia in 2008 and indeed the inadequate response from Euro-Atlantic institutions to keep Putin accountable was itself, uh, as you say, an invitation to Putin to launch this war. Um, and on that point, it seems like over the past year or so, Europe and the West more generally have done their homework and they're pressing for a more accountability in the International Criminal Court, for instance, to try Putin for war crimes and b more solidarity with Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova. I mean, we heard about uh, it's uh, the NATO and EU candidacy status. Um, to me, this was a huge lesson learned. But uh, drawing on your experience of the past year or so, I would love to know, what's yours? What's your biggest lesson learned? Uh, the biggest lesson uh, uh, I learned that guarantees um, in the contemporary world uh, doesn't work. In as much as there are uh, rogue states which have no barriers uh, in their barbaric behavior. Uh, it, the, the, another lesson is that we have to rely upon ourselves in defending our country. Because, um, uh, well, somehow we were relying on the national security guarantees provided to Ukraine back in 1994 by um, uh, uh, three nuclear powers in exchange for Ukraine to decide to get rid of its nuclear arsenal, which used to be the third largest in the world. So um, <clears throat> the guarantees, the reliance on uh, own capabilities to defend the country, and of course, uh, solidarity and unity of uh, other democratic countries. So this is the safeguard against uh, the repetition of this kind of uh, dark uh, times. Mm. I was quite struck by what you said, that Ukrainians have to rely on themselves to defend their country. Uh, the resilience of Ukrainian citizens has been really clear and powerful over the past year. And certainly many Europeans feel emboldened uh, at the sight of regular Ukrainian citizens who stand up and fight for their right to live in peace. But without weapons, without leopard tanks and without unity, uh, the situation would be a lot more difficult. Now, I want to ask, what in your opinion will it take for Ukraine to win this war? Again, uh, the words uh, and the facts I mentioned, uh, unity, solidarity, and assistance. Well, and uh, without mobilization of the whole Ukrainian nation, one cannot imagine, uh, you know, the successful result of uh, uh, resisting the aggressor. Uh, and of course, uh, without the assistance uh, uh, with weapons uh, from our friendly uh, states, uh, especially at this stage, uh, it is uh, difficult to imagine that Ukraine would stand. But Ukrainian in, Ukrainians uh, indeed um, demonstrated uh, uh, well its uh, courage uh, and determination to defend the country. So that's what was the biggest surprise for the outside world. How it happened that Ukrainians uh, were capable to resist the second uh, largest army in the world. Uh, after one year of uh, fighting uh, this army, I came to a conclusion. This is the second largest uh, army of the third world. 
Uh, and that uh, proves that uh, this army can be defeated. And uh, there is a determination uh, among Ukrainians that uh, our armed forces are capable to defeat the enemy and to restore uh, our borders um, uh, around uh, Ukraine. So this is uh, how we see the end of this war. Mm. And um, this question of uh, land reclamation, border reclamation, it's something that I, I would love to ask you um, leading into my next question. I think that we can't forget that Russia's attack on Ukraine was really an escalation of something that was already going on in uh, 2014. It was a horrendous escalation from the uh, annexation of Crimea. Um, but even before that, Russia's uh, aggression has been a sort of an unignorable force. I mean, you mentioned Georgia in 2008. So, you know, a return to peace is definitely one thing, but there's so many other uh, aspects of post-war Ukraine um, still to be decided, possible negotiations. There's Ukraine's reconstruction, its financing. So is there room, do you think, for land reclamation in that package? And more generally, could you give us your hope for Ukraine once it's won the war? Well, uh, we expect that um, this war will be ended with the victory of Ukraine. We expect that um, um, the peace will prevail uh, uh, throughout Ukraine. Uh, we are expecting the accountability working. In our understanding, this is the accountability for the act of aggression by the uh, leadership of Russia. So they, uh, for this purpose, uh, Ukraine initiated the creation of the ad hoc tribunal uh, for the investigation of the crime of aggression, which is being considered in the international law as mother of all crimes. So it is uh, all other crimes, uh, war crimes, war against humanity, genocide. So they are derivative from the uh, a major crime, that is the crime of aggression. Um, all those responsible have be, to be accountable before the court, including the leadership of Russia, including those um, Russians who have committed war crimes and crimes against uh, humanity. So all those have to be brought to the court and uh, punished. And uh, um, I also foresee that uh, very soon after our victory and the uh, peace uh, in Ukraine, Ukraine will be inseparable part of United Western democracies. That is uh, inseparable part of the European Union and, the, and NATO. In fact, uh, now I hear more and more, um, well, um, conclusions that uh, Ukraine is de facto already NATO member. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, we understand that uh, the, the Article 5 of the Washington Treaty uh, cannot be a guarantee from a NATO member state. So only after the war, uh, Ukraine will be uh, a very soon member of NATO and uh, the European Union. We expect this year we will begin negotiations on accession to the European Union. So, and without uh, this uh, unprecedented, uh, blatant, uh, barbaric war um, of Russia against Ukraine, 
it might have been uh, impossible to imagine that very quickly Ukraine will begin negotiations on the exception on joining the European Union and NATO. So Putin uh, achieved uh, contrary to what he was expecting. He was ex expecting to undermine NATO, to undermine uh, unity, uh, transatlantic unity, to undermine uh, European Union. Uh, as a result, NATO is going to be enlarged at the expense of uh, traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden. As a result, Ukraine uh, uh, never was uh, strong militarily as it is now. Uh, and um, uh, so this was a failure and miscalculation by Putin of his intentions. Mariana Drach is the Radio Free Europe Ukrainian Service Director overseeing the service's award-winning coverage of the country's 2013-14 Maidan demonstrations and developments since. Under her watch, the broadcaster has launched the impactful anti-corruption reporting project Schemes, Corruption in Details, as well as multiple media programming efforts for the residents of Russia-annexed Crimea, Crimea Realities, and war-torn Eastern Ukraine, Donbass Realities. Ms. Drach, Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I'd like to begin with, you know, in your experience as a journalist, you've come in contact with many difficult situations. I was wondering if you were comfortable sharing these uh, these situations. What was the most difficult experience since the outbreak of war last year? Uh, the most difficult experience was certainly the deaths of my close colleague, uh, our journalist producer Vera Hirich was killed in her cave apartment at the end of April, uh, actually the day when UN Secretary General visited the Ukrainian capital. And we were in touch with Vera daily, uh, at least twice a day since full-fledged invasion uh, started, because Vera led our coverage meetings and we planned topics, uh, uh, discussed where to dispatch correspondents, and the latest material that Vera produced was about um, Mariupol. Uh, she was able to find a woman, a Holocaust victim, who managed to escape from this uh, from the seized uh, Mariupol. And that woman said that it was like the blockade of Leningrad, only much worse. So basically, it was a family that survived World War II. And it was devastating uh, for that family to witness the war. So if I'm thinking about Vera, I'm thinking about many innocent victims of this war. And overall, over 40 journalists died, both covering the war and as civilians. And to me, it is, you know, it is just a testimony that you cannot uh, protect Ukrainians nowadays. Uh, Russian bombs target everybody and there is no safe place. I'm so sorry to hear about this. And, you know, it's never easy to come on a, on a show and, 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 and to share these experiences. So I thank you for your bravery. We just heard from our last speaker, ex-Foreign Minister Boris Tarsuk, and his biggest lesson learned over the past year, that security guarantees are never truly guaranteed, that solidarity, Western unity, they were key to uphold democracy in Ukraine. Um, do you share Mr. Tarasuk's lessons learned, or would you counter them? And maybe more generally, what were your biggest lessons learned since last year? Uh, I think I think that uh, this is not over. Uh, 
so I think that definitely we have to learn a lot of lessons, more than one. And one of the lessons to me is that many got uh, Ukraine invasion prediction very, very wrong. And Josep Borrell, the European Union foreign policy chief, said that he did not believe that this is going uh, to happen. And uh, many believed if this would happen, that Kyiv would fall uh, in a matter of days, many say in three days, and the government would fall as well, that Zelensky will be assassinated. We read in New York Times about guerrilla warfare in Ukraine. So I think that one of the lessons that we have to analyze definitely why um, that was wrong and wrong on many accounts and why this time the American and British intelligence was better than intelligence of some other countries. So I think that definitely this is one of the lessons. And another one is uh, I completely agree that Western solidarity uh, is very important for Ukraine. And the witness of that solidarity was definitely a visit, surprise visit of US President Biden uh, to Ukraine, the first visit in about 15 years. So uh, it is important lesson that for countries at war, solidarity is extremely, extremely uh, important. And probably another lesson is uh, the resistance of Ukrainian people. So I think it is extremely, extremely uh, important as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the key message is that, you know, overwhelmingly the rhetoric has been about support, about solidarity, and because of this, I think it's undeniably convincing that Ukraine will win this war. So is there for you that sense of there's a light at the end of the tunnel? And is your hope for Ukraine when this is all over? Uh, well, in terms of victory, uh, I think that you would not be surprised that many Ukrainians think that already Ukraine achieved a victory if we are speaking not about territorial gains, but about moral victory and the winning spirit. And opinion polls show that uh, around 90% of Ukrainians or over 90 do believe that Ukraine will win uh, this war. Uh, we know what is needed for the country to win the war, because if we would listen to Ukrainian leaders and to many Western experts, they said that Ukraine would need uh, more Western arms, it needs modern arms, so the speed of delivery is also very, very uh, important, and uh, it takes many uh, components, but in terms of uh, the hope uh, for Ukraine, I do hope that Ukraine will stay and become a strong regional leader. And in the words of Ukrainian uh, historian Yaroslav Ratsak, uh, it can become the new Central European tiger. And I think that this idea can be uh, appealing. And in terms of uh, how Ukraine should look like, I think that definitely its membership in the European Union and NATO, this is again, according to opinion polls, this is something that Ukrainian leaders say, and this is something which is embedded in the Ukrainian uh, constitution. And I think it is remarkable that Ukraine uh, has applied to the EU a few days after the full-fledged invasion. Uh, and um, we also have, at least this is my uh, hope that Ukraine will stay a modern, uh, country, and I personally like initiatives in e-democracy uh, that uh, Ukraine launched in recent years, like uh, app DIA. I have it on my phone, and it's really a great tool connecting government with citizens. So I do hope that Ukraine will become uh, a leader of uh, technological uh, innovations in the continent, but also 
uh, across the world. But in terms of future of the country, uh, I think it is very important to speak about values, dignity. This is something which is very, very important uh, for Ukrainian people. And of course, Ukrainians can hope uh, that this um, the Ukrainian model will be one of the great uh, European models. Of course, we're talking about maybe more optimistic uh, scenarios because a lot of Western support will be needed to rebuild the country and challenges Challenges are definitely uh, immense in front of Ukraine. Mm, definitely. I think, you know, you mentioned that Ukraine already has won this moral victory and it's about values. And I think that Russia has really isolated itself and lost any sense of credibility with outside partners. So I think that you've summed it up incredibly well. Thank you again for your reflections. And I hope that you can count on Friends of Europe to also be a, a friend of Ukraine in the future. Thank you a lot. Our fourth and final guest for this episode is Ina Shevchenko, who is a Ukrainian author and activist, journalist at Charlie Hebdo, and leader at Femin International. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ina. It's always a pleasure. Um, I've asked this question to our other guests also, so I'll start with this. I was hoping you could share with us your experience of the 24th of February one year ago. Of course, I remember that February 24th, and of course we will never be able to Forget it. Um, it's been a year now that every day is February 24th. Um, on that day, I was awakened um, at 4 a.m., which is precisely the time when Russia's invasion of Ukraine has begun. But I was awakened by beautiful sounds of my five-month-old baby and in a, in a peaceful European capital, while at the very same moment, Babies in Ukraine, their mothers, their families, and my own family were waking up to the horrible sounds of Russian bombs, rain falling behind their windows. Um, and I, I was, I remember while holding my child in my arms, I was watching live, uh, observing live, learning um, how um, Kiev. Uh, Kharkiv, um, other Ukrainian cities, and my hometown, Kherson, were attacked, were bombed by invaders, by the aggressor who speaks the language that we understand very well. Um, I remember that I right away checked my um, our family WhatsApp chat, and at 4 a.m., um, there was silence in the chat, but everyone was online. And I, of course, knew what that meant. My family, um, at that very moment, were discovering the first, the first moments of, of the war. The war that, um, that will, you know, that day turned um, for them to be a beginning of months-long experience of Russian occupation. Um, they've experienced the horrors of Russian world, and my hometown, Kherson, became a, became a crime scene. Um, crime scene where barbarism of a kind and scale um, Europe haven't seen since 1944 
uh, took place where people were um, killed, civilians were killed, um, raped, tortured, where, from where children uh, were kidnapped and deported and some of them are now being re-educated and crucified on um, either Russian territory or um, Russian-controlled territory, occupied territories of Ukraine. Um, if that day, of course, that day changed all of us. But um, for me personally, if that day um, changed anything in my in my identity, um, I thought a lot about the feelings with which I left Ukraine in two thousand twelve. I had to flee my country from political persecutions of. Um, the regime of Viktor Yanukovych, the regime of that time, which was, of course, um, a, a puppet dictator uh, of, of Vladimir Putin and um, supported very strongly by Kremlin. And as an activist who um, who have fought uh, and, and uh, campaigned against um, the regime of Yanukovych in Ukraine, Putin's regime in Russia and um, uh, Alexander Lukashenko's regime in Belarus and, of course, have experienced a lot of violence uh, and persecutions from those regimes. I remember when I finally had to flee Ukraine um, in 2012, I left my country with a very bitter feeling and with a feeling of disappointment, disappointment by, um, by the society that seemed to be apolit- apolitical and and sort of passive, and uh, the, the, the population that was um, giving away their destiny in the, uh, destinies in the arms of, you know, in the hands of, uh, um, in the hands of um, criminals and, and um, um, you know, uh, dictators uh, that were willing to sacrifice, you know, people for their own interests. And, um, of course, I left Ukraine at that time with a, even with the feeling of anger. I was very angry um, against my own country and against Ukrainians for the passiveness of that time and for, for letting those um, criminals rule over, over their destinies and their futures. Um, and I, I know that February 24th and this year, um, after this year, I dream, of course, very often, um, about going back to Ukraine. And while I'm absolutely unable to, to speculate about the, the, how this war, uh, will, will end, um, and, um, what Ukraine will look like after the end of this war, because um, I think that the issue is too, 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 too big and too serious and too grave to to speculate. Uh, but when I imagine that I will, I will come back, I will go back to Ukraine and walk uh, the streets that no longer belong to me, where I will be just a guest. I know that. Um, when I will walk the streets of Ukraine, either victorious or, or beaten and crippled, um, I will 
you know, the feelings of anger and disappointment will have no right to, to exist. And I will simply um, feel and experience only humility, humility in front of the nation that literally um, at this very moment is sacrificing itself for peaceful Europe, for, for the chance of Europe to to still have a peaceful future. Um, the nation that literally sacrifices itself for everything that we consider um, Western values. Um, the nation that sacrifices itself for democracy. And um, I will feel only, in addition to humility, I will feel gratitude in front of the nation that um, finally, um, during this attack, finally became coherent, united, um, and truly heroic, truly heroic. And I will feel gratitude in front of them uh, for um, probably giving a stronger chance to my daughter uh, to never wake up from the sounds of rockets behind her window. The justifications for this war are, and we want to keep hammering this point home, that the justifications are not normal. And the results of it, the fighting, the uncertainty, the pain, the bloodshed that are surrounding this war are unlike anything on the European continent since World War II. We've seen the Kremlin's annexation of Crimea as the invasion's starting point in 2014, and many territorial disputes since then. Um, so it's a question of keeping this war from becoming our new normal and from new borders from becoming the new normal. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, there, is, there, is still, there, is, there is still misconception and misunderstanding of, of, the, uh, of the true nature of this war. It's not a territorial dispute. It is, it is not about... Donbass, and it's not about Crimea. Um, it is really a, um, once again for Ukrainians. It is it is an entire colonial war, and you know neither Putin nor anyone in Kremlin and uh, um, even in you know in Russian population, the Russian civil society. Um, nobody pretends that it's anything else. Uh, Putin justified um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine um, by criminal historic historic revisionism, uh, claiming that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are same people bound by same language. And uh, he then imagined himself to be... Um, um, Piotr I, who waged war for Swedish territories, um, and he genuinely confessed that it is his destiny to bring back um, uh, territories that belong to Russian Empire. So um, this, of course, um, latest uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine, uh, which is, uh, which is um, Putin's attack, uh, it probably have been prepared since 2008 when Putin took um, West's categorical rejection of Ukrainian NATO membership uh, as a sign of permissiveness, as a sort of a red 
uh, a sort of a, a you know a green light for for an attack however i think that um the urge to launch a full scale invasion um appeared in kremlin in 2014 when um ukrainian maidan revolution took place which was which was in its nature a pro european pro eu revolution people literally um were dying for europe um uh, in ukraine in 2014 in kiev in maidan at my on maidan because um as uh, many know that um, the regime of yanukovych um opened fire on civilians on peaceful protesters who um were gathering um on maidan so that the the also the, one of the important things to never forget is that um ukrainians um ukrainians overthrew their dictator and they overthrew uh, their dictator for um for their uh, you know with their aspirations of democracy with their aspirations uh, for european uh, democratic and free ukraine um so ukrainians literally literally are fighting and dying and and sacrificing themselves um for europe and as it has been said many times there is no european nation that was dying that that where people were dying for europe but there is now ukraine That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.